0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Ryan, one of the pastors here. Um, Glad you're with us this morning. If you uh, brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle of the Bible and we'll be in Psalm 95. This is really a part one of a two part series um, for this week and next week as we look at 95 this week and 96 next week and talk about the topic or subject of worship um, and if you're with us for Sunday school this morning, you'll see that this is very appropriate that we, we preach on this and talk about this even this morning, but let me, um, read for us, uh, God's word found in Psalm 95. If you have found it there, let's give our attention to the reading of his word. Psalm 95, let us sing songs of praise. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God a and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Verse 6, O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are, his, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would um, give us your spirit, Lord, that you would open our eyes and ears. That we may see and hear things, otherwise we could not. Lord, it is not important um, what I think about this text, what's important uh, is seeing you this morning through this text uh, And what you have to say to us And uh, so we ask that you would do this uh, at this time We pray this in your son's name, amen uh, I'm going to ask you this morning to remember If you if you have this moment where uh, the, the first time that you might have seen I don't know, maybe maybe it was a celebrity Or a professional athlete that you grew up um, admiring. The first time that you saw this individual in person, think of a time when that happened for you. Um, for me, and I, I can't remember if I shared the story or not, but it's worth talking about again. I was 10 and our family was uh, on a trip to Florida and my brother who who claims that he has a gift for spotting these types of, you know, celebrities, he, he spots uh, Daryl Talley who played professional football, it's it's the point of this story is that you don't know who that is, Um, who plays professional football for the Buffalo Bills, did, in 19, it's like 1990. Um, And I'm 10, my brother's 13, he spots him, and we just freeze, we're right there in the lobby, I mean, just statues, and we just can't believe it, there he is, I mean, I had his trading card, I have his trading card still. Um, And so the guy on that card is standing right here in this lobby. Well, of course, what do you got to do? You got to get the autograph. And so we just like grab some newspapers off the the front lobby as if we read the newspaper. And we start following this guy around. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure he knew what was going on. In our eyes, we were just like he didn't know we were there. We were. Yeah, you know, We were, we were going to sneak up on him, and I don't know what we were going to do it once we snuck up on him. But the point was maybe to hopefully, maybe he would give us an autograph. We're not sure. And as we're sort of meandering around, I'm sure my parents knew what was going on. This is going to sound like my parents weren't even involved uh, here in a second. But I'm sure they knew what was going on. But we, we follow him around. I'm sure we're annoying him at this point. And, and we realize, well, he's, he's about to get on the elevator. Of course, we're in a hotel. He's going to go to his room. And so the elevator opens, and he gets on with his family And Brad and I look at each other, and then I just jump on the elevator. And the doors close, and there goes my brother. I don't know where I'm going. We don't even have a room yet. Daryl Talley hits five in the elevator. I hit seven. I don't know why. I just did. I think there's a stroke of genius, actually, looking back on it, because that meant he had to get off first, and I could just sort of hang back. But um, sitting in the elevator, now what do I do? Palms are getting sweaty. This is just, just amazing. I'm like feet away from this professional football player, and the door opens, and you know I'm about to lose my moment here. And his family is exiting, and finally, the only thing that I can think to do is just say, "Are you Darrell Tally?" <laughs> yes. Can I have your autograph? Oh, sure. He grabs the paper and he gives me the autograph. Thanks. Door closes. Elevator goes to the floor number seven. I have to figure out what to do at this point, but I've got it. I've got it. I get back on the elevator. I go down the lobby and that lobby door opens and there's my brother and I just come out screaming. I got the autograph. You know, my parents are like, where the heck did you go? You just got on the elevator with somebody you don't know. We can talk about that later, but yeah. And I replay this scene in my mind often because I just wonder now, I'm, at, I'm 39, I wonder what, what, what was going on in the minds of those in that lobby as this kid sort of comes off this elevator screaming, I've got it. And, and I start here with a story to say that, you know, there is something about our responses to things or people that really communicate who they are and what they mean to us. And maybe if you have that sort of first interaction with that celebrity you, you saw in person or that professional uh, sports player, whoever it might be, you, know, you, you there, there's, there's a response there that, that, that communicates something about who they are and what they mean to us. My response coming off that elevator was saying something about what I thought of Daryl Talley at that time. But at 39, of course, at this point, I would play it cool, wouldn't have to show him any of uh, any of that, um, but at ten, that response—one of, of both reverence and expression—right, that's totally appropriate, right? And coming off that elevator, it communicated exactly what I thought about being in the presence of a professional football player such as this. I think the same is very true for us when we think about corporate worship, when we think about the worship of God himself, what we're doing here this very minute. And what this psalm wants to do is it wants to celebrate God's kingship. That is, God is our king, and because he is our king, our worship should reflect something of that reality. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the creator of all things. He is our king. And, and the expression and the response should, should in some way reflect that reality. That's what the psalm is trying to get us to, to do. That's what worship is. But the million dollar question is what should that look like? What should it sound like? What should that expression be? What does what should worship be? be on Sunday morning? What should it feel like? And that's sort of what I'm after this morning and next Sunday. Because I think it's a question that all of us are asking. And I think it's a question that we sort of try to figure out, you know, a lot of churches are different. Our churches are heavy-footed in certain areas. And and even where we are as a church, I think it's always important not only just to communicate why we do what we do, but let's always go back to Scripture and find out what is Scripture asking us to do as it pertains to the corporate worship of God. Because if God is who He is and He is our King, that demands a certain type of response. And I don't think any of us would disagree with that. But what might Psalm 95 have to say just to begin to point us in the direction of what that might look like? And so to that end, I want us to see the expression of worship in Psalm 95, the reverence of worship in Psalm 95, and then the remembering of worship in Psalm 95. So let's do that. Let's take that first one—the expression of worship. This is going to be verses one to five. If I wanted to give you—and we just read this text, so hopefully it's a little bit—you know—it's fresh in your mind. If I wanted to give you a word that, that that summarizes what is going on here in these first five verses, I would give you the word. I would say that it is loud. That is the word in my mind that best that, that describes what is going on. There is a lot of noise going on, and there's a lot of noise going on in the Bible. People are getting loud. People are shouting. There's some fist pumps going on in here, I believe, around verse 4, if you look really closely. (laughs) But it's loud. It's loud. People are encouraging one another to come and express their love for God. And the way God's people are being encouraged to express that love is by singing, is by shouting, is by rejoicing, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. It is by being loud. Oh, come, let us sing, shout even to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And why is it loud? Because they are before the king. Verse three, and not just any king, this is the God of the universe king. This is the the maker of heaven and earth king, the one who made the mountain peaks and the ocean trenches and everything in between. He made ocean is really what that verse says there in five. He made made ocean and I love what Eugene Peterson writes about it. He owns it too, right? He made it. That's why it's loud. They are before the king and being loud, singing, shouting, rejoicing, what? Reflects that reality. It says something about what their king means to them and who he truly is is they are before the king and being loud is a hundred percent appropriate and right uh, as far as a response is concerned for the king that they worship in fact anything less right anything less would be inappropriate you would not go to a concert And think of your favorite band, even if they're all dead. Like if you wanted to go see them in in their prime, whoever that would be. You would not go there and you would not stand, pay the money, get there, stand in that concert hall, whatever it is, arena, you know, with arms crossed. Sort of staring. Like, right? I hope not. I hope not anyway. Um, If it's your favorite band, one, right, the, the love, right, the love of their music should move you to some expression, hopefully beyond standing with your arms crossed. And I would hope that that would be true, but to sing and shout and to jump around might actually reflect the reality that this is your favorite band. Just to use a simple illustration, it would be the expression that best communicates that love if you were to be silent, if you were to be crying, if you were to lay down on the ground and take a nap, right? Right? No one would guess walking by, oh, I bet this is their favorite band, (laughs) right? That response would actually be inappropriate, which means that there actually is an appropriate response in the way that we've been created, in the way that God has designed and created us and called us. In Psalm 95 says, when you come to worship the king, the best way to communicate or reflect who you are worshiping is to come with loud noise. With singing, shouting, rejoicing, anything less would be inappropriate at best and not reflect the reality of who you're worshiping. This is the expression of worship. This is how God wants to be worshiped, friends. He wants us to sing and to shout and rejoice over Him. Why? Because He's King. He's our Maker, because Christ is our King. Our corporate worship then should reflect that reality. Derek Kidner writes this to come into singing, uh, to come singing into God's presence is not the only way, but it is the way that best expresses love. Think of all the things that you love for just a second. What expression? That's not the only expression. What expression best communicates that love? We just got done talking about our favorite music. Let's let's move on to something that's probably in everybody's mind, or at least it's in mine. Let's talk about our favorite sports team. Right? What expression best communicates your love for your team? Is it staring in silence in front of the TV or in the stadium? No, it's cheering, right? It's shouting, It's wearing team colors. If we stop and think about the things we love and more on this next week, not only do we naturally talk about them, but we express that love through noise, through singing, through praising. Because the expression that best communicates our love for these things based on our own experiences and what Psalm 95 is telling us is by being loud. And friends, that is not a new thing, that is a Psalm 95 thing. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's not just what God wants. It's actually what's appropriate to best express our love for him, just like our favorite music, just like our favorite sports teams, but more so. This is how God wants to be worshipped. He wants us to sing and shout and rejoice over him. Why? Because he is king, because he is our maker. He made ocean, as we said. And because Christ is our king, our corporate worship should reflect that reality. This is the expression that we find uh, of worship in the first five verses. All right, let's move to verses 6 and 7 where we then run into the reverence of worship. All right, so this is the second point. When we use the word reverence here, we mean deep respect or even awe for something. Uh, several years ago, when Ada and I were working for RUF, we were in Florida for the uh, national conference. We call it Summer Conference. We all are familiar with that. And we're in Florida, and I'm out that morning uh, before things are going, just getting a little bit of exercise on Front Beach Road that runs parallel to the ocean. And as I'm walking, I've got my headset in and just sort of headset. i got some... 1988 just called um i've got my ipod on you know and yeah and i'm just you know got a little ryan time going here getting some exercise loving the view over here of the ocean and uh, as i'm going uh the ocean view gets blocked because you know i can start passing some condos and that kind of thing and then all of a sudden there's a clearing and, and just as I'm expecting to to pass that clearing and see more of the ocean, what I have been seeing, I see something very different. I see three Black Hawk helicopters in formation. Could have been like no more than 200 yards away from me, but certainly no more than 100 yards off that water. Just in formation, in my mind, locked and loaded. I've said this before. It was the sexiest thing I've ever seen in my life. Pardon if that's inappropriate. It was an amazing display of power. And it was just right there. Like, I'm running, boom, ocean, condos, and then all of a sudden these three things. And, and when you see this and you see the power of it, you see that there's an awe of it. There's a respect about it. And it literally makes you just sort of get low. I mean, that's what I did. I stopped. Um, and I and I just sort of watched this thing, and I just thought, if I were in a foreign place that we were in war, I would just I'd be dead. I wouldn't even know these things were there. Of course, I probably wouldn't have my iPod in if I was in war, but that's another story. This is what we mean when we talk about reverence, right? When we use this word reverence, it is a deep respect or even an awe for something um, because of who or what it is, the power that it has. And that's where the psalm turns next. Each of these three main verbs, let us worship, bow down, kneel, right, is concerned with what getting low before God. Because that's what reverence does. It's a humbling factor. So, in the first part of the psalm, we were concerned with what? Getting loud, and now we're concerned with getting low. As almost all the commentaries point out, the standard for worship in Scripture means to prostrate oneself before God. And if you you know what that means, it, it means to literally lay face down, to get as low to the crown as you could. It's to humble yourself. And why should we get low? Why is reverence all of a sudden showing up in this psalm? Again, because this is the king, right? This is the maker of heaven and earth, and reverence reflects that reality. Verse 7, he is our God, and we are his people. Do we want a God to worship where there is no reverence? No, we don't want that. But most of our concern, if we're honest, when we talk about reverence and we think about reverence, is that it usually is associated with distance. With something cold and impersonal, you know, sort of how dare you come near me, which makes verse 7b, if you'll look at it so amazing, we are the sheep of his pasture, the flock that he feeds, how intimate in the face of reverence already here in Psalm 95, because Christ is our king, our worship then should reflect that reality And so far, we have seen the expression of worship and the reverence of worship. We have been told to get loud and we've been told to get low. But we all know, perhaps all too well, that this is the tension that we experience in the American church today, isn't it? I should say the Protestant church today. When it comes to corporate worship, some churches, as you may or may not have noticed, lean more on the expression of worship, leaving perhaps little room for the reverence of worship. While others lean heavy on the reverence of worship, leaving little room for the expression of worship. Uh, Darwin stole my thunder in Sunday school, but my, still my all-time favorite Babylon Bee, which is a, sat, a, blog, a satire blog about Christian culture. My all-time favorite headline is motion-activated lights turn off during Presbyterian worship. <laughs> and see, we, if that's what satire, if we laugh, if there's some truth to that, right? As I'm, you know, yeah, I get it. We don't move a lot. I get it. Okay. Um, But we, you know, we, we wonder though, is there a formula though that best sort of holds these two together? And here's the, here's the truth. There's the reality. There isn't, there isn't, we need to care about both. And I actually think there is something better than a formula that helps us with this expression and reverence with getting loud and getting low, and it's in the last four verses. Excuse me. But two things before we move on. I want you goodness. I want you to know, in case you don't, especially if you're visiting here. That the ministry staff here and, and, and the leadership of this church, we care deeply about these things. We think about these things all the time. Uh, we think about uh, you know, how are we holding the expression of our worship along with the reverence of our worship. And we examine that and we ask what can we do differently and what do we need to add or take away. What does it need to look like? And I just want to first say that, that, that you know, whether you knew this or not, that we are aware of this. And we probably, I mean, we, I wouldn't say we think about it too much. We think about it appropriately a lot. We have meetings about this stuff. We go to conferences to learn about other traditions and cultures and expressions of worship. Because we, are, we care about it that much and we think it's that important. The second thing, though, I want you to say, or that I want to say before we move on, is that no church gets this right. No church gets this right. We all have preferences and we need to recognize them as such. Because preferences don't mean i'm right and you're wrong no church gets this right and i say this as a segue to my last point because while expression and reverence in the worship service service are important to focus on them would not be the way that we better them in the service the way we fine-tune these two things that psalm 95 holds side by side is by remembering And this gets to the third point. Worship is remembering. This is verses really 7c to 12 there. This last section begins with the verse, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you think this transition a bit strange, you're in good company here. A lot of scholars think that this is just sort of a section of the psalm that was just added in. I mean, look, think about it. We just got loud for about five verses and we got into reverence, talking about kingship. And all of a sudden, don't harden your hearts. And so there's, there's some scholarship that thinks that, 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 that these verses don't belong here. But unanimously, conservative scholars, evangelical scholars uh, believe and say that these four verses absolutely belong here. And I happen to agree with them. And here's why. They want us to remember. And they think. Not, not the scholars. But the psalm. God himself. Says that by us remembering. Is what actually begins the process. Of appropriately bringing. What reverence and expression. Into our worship. How so? By remembering what? The mighty deeds of the king. And. And his people's response. As part of the worship, this psalm is calling Israel to remember the mighty deeds of the Lord, specifically the Exodus account here when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And just to review this story, when verse 8 recounts Meribah and Massa, it draws our attention to the wilderness generation. And who was this? This was the generation who was enslaved in, in Egypt, but who God freed Had Moses lead those people out, cross the Red Sea, and did this incredible mighty act that that until Jesus shows up, I have no idea why this is happening until Jesus shows up, there is no act of redemption bigger than this. This is always what Israel is looking back on, is this act of redemption, this, this freedom, this mighty act that God did for his people, and he frees them, and they get to the other side, and what does chapter 15 of Exodus say? They complained. They grumbled. They, they, did, they were ungrateful. They wanted to go back. They wanted. They, they would rather go back and be slaves. It's shocking, I know, right? And and we're sitting here like these idiots. What are they doing, right? Why would they want to do this? Why wouldn't they trust God? I mean, they saw the whole thing, <clears throat> and then once they landed, they did, they didn't they they did not thank God for the rescue. And so, what did God do? In sort of an effort to discipline them, he made them basically go around in a big circle for 40 years, trying to get Egypt out of them in order that that, that that they may begin to trust in him and take them to that promised land of Canaan where they would find rest. Now, why would remembering this be important to worship? The first thing is we forget and I don't mean, like, there, there are times in our lives where we just kind of happen to, like, forget about something, you know, that didn't matter. We forget the big stuff. And this is a part of the fall. This is a part of our confession of sin. We don't remember. And just to sort of prove this point here, and I, and I would sort of add, kind of going back to Psalm 88, the challenges of our memory are why Psalm 88 and our circumstances tend to dominate what we believe and what we see. And sort of to get at this, I, there's a podcast called Revisionist History that I like by Malcolm Gladwell. And in his season three, episode four, um, episode titled Free Brian Williams, um, he takes a look at our memory. This is, this is very interesting. He takes a look at our memory and he talks about these moments in our life that he calls or that sociologists call life, light bulb moments. And the flash, or sorry, not light bulb, flashball moments, excuse me, let me actually read my notes, flashball moments. And a flashball moment would be like 9-11 or JFK's assassination. These are moments uh, that they call flashball because everyone remembers what, where they were, what they were doing. In, you know, in these moments when they found out that the towers had been hit or that the president had been shot. If I were to take you all and, you know, ask you where you were at 9-11, you would know where you were. If you were alive when JFK was shot, you knew where you were. And so they call these things flashbulb moments. What studies are showing, though, is that even with these moments, our memories are not what we think they are. In fact, in one flashbulb study done on both 9-11 and the Challenger incident in 1986, sociologists had people write down the events right after they happened. Write down those events. And then a year later, they interviewed those people and asked them where were they on 9-11 and where were they when the Challenger blew up. And their answers were completely different. And we we can understand that. But then they would pull the sheets out and say, no, 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 this is what you said. And they would look at those sheets and they would say, I don't, I know that's my handwriting, but that is not where I was. They would argue with themselves (laughs) a year later. And I love Malcolm Gladwell calls this, says, says this is, we're this way because we are memory fundamentalists. And what he means by that is we think our memory and the truth is the same thing. And I don't want to weird everybody out at this point thinking that you don't remember anything. This was 60% of those done, those, those, those uh, in the flashbulb uh, studies, 60% had totally shifted in what they thought, where they thought they were. The rest of that 40% was split between those who remembered the same. So maybe you're part of the 20%. We'll just you know, go there. But I don't want you to freak out thinking that, you know, oh, man, I don't remember anything. The point of this is we trust our memory way too much. And I guarantee you came in here this morning trusting something of your memory. Uh, something that is going on around you. Something that has happened in your past. And you're, you promise this is the way that it was. No, 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 no. I was not in my office on 42nd Street on 9-11. I was at a cafe on 53rd. Because this is part of the fall. And we give very little credence to it. We think our memory and truth is the same, and we 're sure of it, but what the Bible is doing over and over and over is saying what remember because you don't you forget, and there's so much a part of who we are and this this is a, a, a you know a sermon for another time, right. That is almost incapable of calculating and grasping the promises of God. That apart from his spirit and apart from the weekly worship and gathering of his people to remember his mighty deeds, we would never do it. But we think we would and that's the problem. If you want a, a reason why we come here every week, there's one right there. That's why we remember. The second thing, though, and that was supposed to be shorter. I'm sorry. That went on a little bit longer. I want to speed up here. The second reason, though, that the that, that psalm is calling God's people to worship and, 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 and part of their worship to remember is because of what it does to our hearts. And this is the point. This is, this is where we're going to end this sermon today. If you put yourself in the temple with Israel and you are becoming uh, reminding, being reminded of this incredible act of God's grace and your ancestors response, what is the effect that that has on you? Reverence. Wow, we are coming before the God who freed our ancestors from Egypt and he did it effortlessly. That's power. Power. That is what you're coming to be before in worship. This is true power and love. And that remembering, what, starts to cultivate reverence and awe and respect because you are coming to worship that God. But as you remember his mighty deeds, you're forced to remember your ancestors' response. One of disobedience and disbelief, they refused to trust, trust Yahweh. They were ungrateful, and now what I'm calling to mind is my own disbelief and my own ungratefulness. My own, I am no different than these people that I'm being forced to remember. Yet God is still keeping his promises to me. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. He is merciful, He is gracious. He is slow to anger and quick to forgive. And guess what that begins to bring forth? Expression. How can it not? Hallelujah, right? Yes, let us come and sing and worship this king of kings. For he is good. Do you see that? Do you see how the psalm wants to cultivate those things in you, in your worship? And to think that some believe that these verses shouldn't even be here. But worship is remembering because we forget. And when we recount God's mighty deeds in our response, we are brought low. But then we get loud. Because we are brought into the grace of God and what he has done for us. And in so doing, we begin to reflect the reality of the very king that we worship. It can't be programmed, people. I can, Jacob can put a thousand songs up here for you to sing. And, and, and if you want that emotion, that's great. We can do that. We can manipulate. The psalm wants to know, do you love your king? That's where this reverence comes from. That's where this expression comes from. And we'll aid it. Right, We'll have a confession of sin and assurance of forgiveness every week. Why? Because you need to remember. I need to remember. And I need that to cultivate my reverence and expression as I go through the worship service. Jack Collins writes this. He says, God's rule is often invisible to us. And some things make it clear. And one function of worship is to call those things to mind. That's not all worship is, friends. But this is where we're starting This is a big part of it because in so doing, we begin to build our faith in his kingship because of who he is and what he has done for us. Friends, if we want to be a people who cultivate both expression and reverence in our worship, we must start by being a people who remember. I've got application and I've got illustrations, but we're going to stop it right there because we've got next week. And I want to do this because I want to pray for us. There is no better illustration that I can offer any closing, uh, anything, no application than for us to come to this table right here. This is the mighty deed of God that, that cultivates the reverence and the expression that we need for worship to come to the table where we are forced to deal with what he has done for us. His grace and this is what we will remember. We pray for us at this time, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this psalm, and we pray that as we look at it, and as we take it in, um, or that we would not try to fabricate what worship should look like, or manipulate, it or all those things. But we would actually respond to you, who you are, and the way that we begin to know who you are is by seeing Jesus. And so as we come to this table now, would you do that for us? Would you show us who you are uh, in these elements, how you have given us your body and how you have poured out your blood to make us clean, to make us acceptable so that we can come into this house of worship in the first place? None of us belong here, but we are welcomed because of your son, Jesus. And that is the beginning places of worship for your church. Give us him. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.